Well, if you haven't yet, then you can turn to 1 Samuel 5, and as we open to that chapter, we'll set the context uh, in this way. Um, It's when we're right in the midst of changing times that things can be most confusing and uh, anxiety-producing. The American publisher Kiplinger ran a financial periodical for a number of years called Changing Times, and the motto of the publication was, uh, this time, like all times, is a very good one if we but know what to do with it. So this time, like all times, is a very good one if we but know what to do with it. And that's a very insightful motto because changing times are fine if we but know what to do with them. Uh, and, and usually that's where the rub comes. Times are changing and we're left spinning. We, we don't know what to do with them. Uh, things are shifting around us. And in the midst of that, instead of a sense of assurance or stability, we experience uh, insecurity and vulnerability. And when things are changing, we can have a sense of losing our way. Uh, we know this to be true on a personal level, just in the changing circumstances of our own life. And we also know this to be true on a, on a cultural and even political level. In fact, in fact, we're all very well aware of, of this change-induced anxiety, uh, which is very real in our own country right now. Changing times are often very difficult times. And like we said last week, uh, in this section of 1 Samuel, as we come to chapter 4 through chapter 7 of 1 Samuel, we're in a section uh, that reflects a period of significant change or transition in Israel's history. Uh, finds them on, on the cusp of change and that uh, prior to 1 Samuel chapter 4, in the period that's come before, Israel has been operating during the time of the judges. So judges have ruled over the people periodically. God has brought uh, judges like Samson or Deborah in and, 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 and they've, they've helped the people sort through their, their farness from God. They've, some of them have been so far from God themselves, but it's been the period of the judges. And, and now as we approach 1 Samuel chapter 8, uh, we're about to transition into that time in Israel's history that will uh, soon be a monarchy. So by chapter 8, the people are asking for a king, uh, which means everything in terms of Israel's structure and how they understand themselves uh, soon very much as a political nation. All of this is going to change as they move from the period of the judges to the period of the kings. Um, And so in the midst of change, well, it might seem like the the best thing uh, that they could hope for is to know what to do with the change, maybe like that old magazine suggested. Ultimately, in the midst of change all around, what Israel needed and what we need in our own time uh, is to be renewed in in an awareness and what it means to know the God who doesn't change. Uh, We need to be renewed in knowing God and what He's like uh, because as history moves forward, it moves forward uh, often tumultuously, but it does move forward according to His purposes, recognizing that He is ultimately the Lord and Master of all history as as things change and come and go and all of these kinds of things. So if we're really going to navigate times that shift as they do, We must, as the writer of 1 Samuel knows, we must know the God whose purposes and power and grace always stand. And it's really this this renewal in the nature of who God is. It's a renewal in big truth about God and how He operates that's right at the center of these chapters that we're working through in 1 Samuel. So in chapters 4 to 7 of 1 Samuel, we're being reminded of of absolute and central truths about the nature and character of God. Because just like uh, ancient Israel needed to be able to rest in the Lord, ultimately they needed to return to the Lord, which we'll hear that call by the time we get to chapter 7, while Israel needed to be renewed in what it means uh, to know the living God, so too we often need this renewing kind of help. 
Uh, So last week, in chapter 4, the big truth we were helped to think through there in relationship to who God is and what He's like is is, is we uh, uh, work through answering that question, what happens to God's people when they persist in sin against God? How how does God operate toward them? What happens to them when they find themselves in that persistent sin position? And we work through the fact that while sin brings things from bad to worse, Ultimately, what God says still stands. There's no amount of chaos we can create by our sin that will remove God's purposes from taking place. God's word stands, and ultimately, the Lord Himself is the one who bears the ultimate punishment for our sin. That's what we saw there at the end of chapter 4, is the ark of God is exiled. God takes the climactic curse of disobedience, and His presence, uh, represented in the ark itself, is carried off into captivity. And so that's something that the chapter 4 narrative helps us with. The Lord takes the exile the people deserve, um, and, and, and as that takes place, we recognize this is ultimately displaying something central about the character and nature of God. This is something that will be displayed climactically at the cross of Christ, where He Himself is the one who pays the ultimate penalty for our sin. So if we're going to know God, we must know He's the one who in sheer uh, abounding grace takes the curse, takes the penalty that we deserve upon Himself and pays that price. And so that's what we talked about last week when we, when we answered that question from chapter 4, what happens when we persist in sin under God? This week in chapter 5, we have another question to ask and answer. And this question comes with some significant contemporary force as we consider it against the backdrop of our own day. So, so, so we come to 1 Samuel chapter 5 with this question, What if the Lord seems defeated? What if the Lord appears defeated? Which which is a very important question to ask if we're we're going to know God in changing times. And maybe this is a question you've had yourself even recently. What, What if the Lord has been defeated? We look around during our own time and at best, any notion of God has been has been put on a shelf in our day. The idea of God isn't a matter of central concern culturally. Spirituality might be interesting, but the notion of a transcendent deity who has rights to all as the creator and sustainer of everything, that's all but gone from our thinking as a society in general. By all outward appearances, as we think culturally, God can seem defeated in our time. How should we think about that? And as we come to 1 Samuel 5, we have help with this kind of concern. And so as we look at the text, we can be renewed in an understanding, ultimately, of the fact that God is not defeated, but He does prove Himself continually victorious. Um, So we're going to look at the chapter this morning. We're actually just going to divide it into two parts, Uh, and the first part being in verses 1 and 2, where we'll think about uh, those verses under the heading, Apparent Defeat. So verses 1 and 2, apparent defeat. In fact, why don't I just read those again so they're, they're fresh in our minds. Chapter 5, verse 1, After the Philistines had captured the ark of God, they took it from Ebenezer to Ashdod, brought it into the temple of Dagon, and placed it next to his statue. Uh, now, in, in reading those verses, we remember where we're at in the storyline up to this point. Uh, Israel has been defeated, uh, not just once, but twice, by the Philistines in battle back in chapter 4. 
And, and you remember how Israel had, had brought the ark of God with them into that second battle, thinking it would serve as a kind of good luck charm. Uh, the ark itself represented the presence of God among the people. We worked that out at some length last time. It reflected God's uh, appointed leadership among the people. It reflected God's revelation among the people, His provision for the people. His mercy seat was there on the lid of the ark, reflecting His kindness toward His people. The ark was the presence of God, uh, in, in a sense, uh, um, encapsulated in this, in this icon there in the people's lives. And so when Israel lost its first round of fighting at the beginning of chapter 4, they thought to themselves that they'd bring out the ark. And if the ark was with them, which was this visible depiction of God's presence among them, well, if the ark is with us, they thought, God will have to fight for us and we're going to win. But of course, things didn't go as planned. God can never be presumed upon. He'll not be used as a good luck charm. And so Israel goes out with the ark uh, this time, but, but the Philistines defeat them again. And actually, the Philistines defeat Israel in a way that's even worse than the first time. So now 30,000 Israelites fall in battle. Three, three priests and a, and a daughter-in-law all die. And not just that, but the Philistines carry off this, this sacred ark of God into captivity. Which for all practical purposes in the life of Israel represented God Himself being carried off from His people. And here, we're now in the beginning of chapter 5 with the ark being brought from Ebenezer, where the battle took place, uh, to the Philistine city of Ashdod. And in Ashdod, there was a temple for this Philistine god, Dagon. Um, in the religious life of the Philistines, Dagon was the head of their pantheon of gods. Uh, he was considered to be Baal's father. If you remember the run-ins with, with Baal that the Israelites continually have as time goes on. Remember when Samson was captured back in Judges, he was also brought into Dagon's temple. It was a different temple, but he was brought into Dagon's temple. Dagon uh, is, is the god of fertility, the head of this, this pantheon of gods. He's the one who's considered the most powerful uh, by the Egyptian uh, theologians of the time. And so here comes the Philistine army returning home carrying the physical symbol of Israel's God with them in their victorious return. And they put that symbol of Israel's God, they put the ark of God into their own God's temple. Which we can do the math in terms of what they're attempting to do with a, with a, with a move like that. And, and that during this time, if, if a people group was defeated, the conclusion would naturally be that the God of the victorious group was obviously way more powerful than the God of the defeated people's group. And so the defeated group's idol, or in this case the ark, which represented the presence of Israel's God, that religious item would be brought into the victorious idol's presence as a kind of victory symbol. It was a trophy. Right? The, the, the losing God would serve in the winning God's temple. You see the imagery that's wrapped up in, in why they're doing what they're doing here. And so, as far as the Philistines were concerned, after the latest battle defeat, Yahweh is now subjected to Dagon. Yahweh's now going to serve Dagon. The Philistines' God won, or so they thought. So, so there's the Ark of the Covenant with all the, the glory it represented in terms of God's revealed presence and, and power among the Israelite people historically. Now the Ark that once made the Philistines tremble in terror earlier in chapter 4, now it's subservient to Dagon. It's subservient to Baal's dad. It's, it's not in the temple at Shiloh. It's in the house of Dagon, which is by all accounts, humiliation for the God of Israel, its apparent defeat. And while the circumstances of this event can seem far removed from us, there is something helpful in this as we consider our own day and the, and the location of the living God, as it were. Um, 
Philip Reef was a sociologist. He died in the mid-2000s, but he wrote a book entitled The Triumph of the Therapeutic. I think I've quoted uh, him to you before. But in that book, he differentiates between what he calls first, second, and third worlds. And he uses these labels in a way that's different than we're used to. If we say third world country, that's, that's not what he's talking about. It's, it's different. So, for example, Reef speaks about first worlds. And in a first world culture, morality is primarily governed by fate. So whatever the, the religious culture might be, how you live is based on uh, maybe myths and cultural narratives that root moral authority in this fate-like structure. So you live in a certain way because if you do so, uh, things will accordingly go well for you, or they won't go well for you if you live in a way you shouldn't live. So, so in, in first world, uh, it's, it's the notion of fate or something like that that's the controlling factor. Now, this would be Buddhism, for example, would be this, this framework. Uh, and then, according to Reef, there, there are second world cultures. And second world cultures would include beliefs like Christianity, where, where as Reef puts it, the, the way we act isn't sourced in fate, but in faith. Uh, so a second world culture holds to a belief in a, in a transcendent being, or maybe a belief in a whole bunch of, of gods, a whole bunch of transcendent beings. Uh, but however it's framed, there's this outside entity that we believe in, that we have faith in, which governs our morality and so on. So first world culture is fate, second world culture is faith, and we've comments on the fact that, that while these are two uh, very different views in a lot of ways of how to live in the world, fate versus faith, they both have this in common, namely that something outside of us is above us. So, so something other than me is, is, is transcendent. There's something other than us in charge. There's a transcendence, there's this outside and above sacredness that exists. Which then brings us to what he calls third world culture. And this is the framework we're right in the middle of today in, in Portland and in much of the Western world in general. In third world culture, everything is different from the first and second worlds uh, because instead of viewing fate as ordering our life or instead of viewing uh, deities of faith as having a kind of authoritative position in our life, now the transcendence is completely gone. So, so there's no sacred order, and instead, the ultimate authority is the self. So, so now, as Reef says, culture must only justify itself by itself. Right? No sacred transcendence. Instead, the God of our age is me, my experience, how I feel, and the cultural call to collectively approve that, whatever it may be. That's the age we live in. So the authoritative autonomy of the self governed by my feelings and experiences. No transcendent, no sacred other outside of or above me. And that's why, uh, for example, if we just see a practical outworking of this, that's why I can be born uh, a, a biological boy in my body and decide that I would prefer to be a girl. Because the feelings of gender dysphoria can be very genuine, and how I feel is seen to be authoritative. Feelings and experiences have been elevated to a place of highest authority. And what's happening is that those feelings are now in charge rather than a creator God's transcendent design, for example. Right? Now, we think about all this, and, and as we take in the world around us and, and, and observe these things, it very much appears then that the living God is placed in a defeated position in the temple of the idol of self. But what I feel and what I experience and how I interpret all of that, the me, is the God of the day. And this isn't something that's just outside the church. This is inside the church too. Uh, there's a book by a, by a respected scholar, Luke Timothy Johnson, 
Uh, he describes himself as a Christian scholar. He teaches in Christian academia. He's, he's published by Christian publishers. But listen to this comment in a book he recently published. He says this. Theology, so the study of God, theology must always begin and always find renewal, not with words found in texts, in other words, not Scripture, but with the experience of actual human bodies. Let me read that again. Theology must always begin and always find renewal, not with words found in sacred texts, but with the experience of actual human bodies. So, so in this statement, he's placing physical experience and feeling over Scripture as authoritatively revealing what God will say is good or not good, or whatever that may be. Here's another statement from his book. He says this, In this, in this search for God's self-disclosure, actual human experience, inasmuch as we can apprehend it, is taken to be the essential area, the essential area of a never-ceasing process of divine revelation. You hear what he's saying? Human experience is the essential arena, the essential area of divine revelation. So, so we see what's reflected here. It's, it's third world kind of thinking. Even, even when it comes to the study of God himself, where is God placed? Well, God is placed subserviently in the temple of my own experience. Culturally, and even sometimes within the church, it appears as if the Lord has been defeated in these ways and is now placed in this subjected position. God is who I feel I experience Him to be. I am the source of ultimate interpretation and meaning. I'm Dagon the victor in this, in this case. At best, God is in the corner in proved subjection to who I am because of how I feel. Now, like we said, as this is the case in our text, there's a sense in which that reflects apparent defeat for the God of the Bible, which, which without going through all that, we know as we look at culture around us, we see this outworking in culture around us. Even if we weren't, weren't thinking about some of these things these people have written, we look around and we ask the question, what if this is it for the Lord? What if, what if, what if this is it? The Lord appears defeated as we consider the culture around us, as we consider the world around us, not least of all in some Christian confessing circles. So often the Lord appears to be the God who's lost the war. Right now, it can seem that way. Our day is not a day of transcendent divine authority. Our day is a day of the authority of me, the authority of self. Dagon seems to have won. Which, if we just let ourselves go down that road for a time, if we allow, for example, social media to form and reform our narrative and paradigm for understanding the world around us, maybe if, maybe if Adele's lyrical explanation of where she's at in our life becomes an experiential authority for us, it seems that God is lost. Poor, poor historical God of the Bible. A deity for an age gone by, maybe, but he's, but he's carried off now into our victorious humanistic temple. We're done with it. When the ark was brought to Dagon's temple, it looked like defeat for Yahweh. And just as we reflect on that, in, in our own circumstances, that can, that can very much, we can feel that to be the case. We can feel that to be the case either, even, even as we're tempted to be pulled away by this sort of thinking that removes God from His transcendent position in our lives and puts Him into the subservient position to how I feel and how I interpret my experiences and these kinds of things. We can find ourselves discouraged just as we feel the current pulling us in those directions personally. And we can be discouraged just as we see the current going in that direction generally. We see these things take place and we can find ourselves in a woe is me kind of position uh, thinking about God and how well at one time he was known at one time he might have been powerful maybe in another generation we always tend to think uh, 
history was better than it, than it ever really was. But maybe earlier that things were better for God than they are now. And now, oh, how poor, poor God, how miserable all this is now that he's been removed. It's the defeat of the master of the universe. However, if we think on that long enough, we know, don't we? It's not defeat. It may feel like defeat. It may appear to be defeat for a time. But ultimately, it is never defeat for the master of the universe. Which brings us to the rest of chapter 5 where we move from the apparent defeat of the Lord in verses 1 and 2 to the proved supremacy of the Lord in verses 3 to 12. The proved supremacy. So just look at verses 3 to 12 now. First of all, uh, in verses 3 to 5, we read how the next thing that takes place is Dagon's own humiliation. So we have that there. Verse 3, the people of Ashdod, so, so the Philistines of that city, they rise up early to go celebrate the victory of Dagon. Uh, but, but what happens in Dagon's temple? They get there, and in the night, they discover that Dagon has fallen uh, with his face to the ground before the Ark of Yahweh. Uh, that happened overnight, apparently. Literally, the text reads that Dagon had fallen face to the ground before the face of the Ark of the Lord. This is his language of worship. He's face down. It prostrate. Dagon's statue is bowing down to the Ark of the Living God. So that's a bit embarrassing. Right? So, so the people, they... they Pick up Dagon. It's actually the same word used there that they used to take about taking the Ark of the Covenant into captivity. Now they take Dagon and set him back up. All right? And set him back up in verse 3 there. There, Dagon, you know, you're, you're our all-powerful God. Don't go falling over anymore. That is not, it's not a very good look for us at all. This is kind of embarrassing. Don't do that. Set him back up. Verse 4, the next morning they try again. The people come back on day 2. They show up at Dagon's temple early in the morning. And what happened now? Well, things are even worse for Dagon than before. Dagon's fallen again. In fact, it's the exact same language I used there again to describe the fact that he's fallen with his face to the ground before the face of the ark of the Lord. Same thing happened there. The idols prostrate again. But this time, it's not a posture of worship. This time, it's a picture of total and complete defeat. So the, the idol of Dagon is laying there, beheaded, with its hands broken off, <coughs> laying across the threshold. Now, there are a number of places in the Old Testament and, and in ancient um, extra-biblical documents too where, where you can read about what it looks like to, to demonstrate battle victory in the ancient Near East when you totally defeat a king, for example. And many of the accounts are, are nothing short of gruesome, but, but in the ancient Near East there was a main symbol of total victory over enemies. And that symbol was you cut off their head and their hands, which you see actually reflected in David's own posture after he takes Goliath down, cuts his head off. Right? It, it, it is the gruesome yet universal symbol of total conquest. And here's Dagon, face down before the face of the ark, hands and head cut off. In the temple of Dagon, the, the, the true humiliation is proved not ultimately to be Yahweh, but, but, this, but this God Dagon himself. It was, it, was, it was the idol of the peoples, this false god who loses. In fact, in verse 5, we're told that the priests and worshipers of Dagon would always have a reminder of their God's defeat. Isn't that interesting? When you read history, apparently up, up through the 7th century, Dagon was still a god who was worshipped. And so all these years went by, we're told that it became this new custom to step over the threshold where Dagon had fallen when entering the temple there in Ashdod. So, so, so now it's not just that Dagon's defeated, but built into the Philistines' own religious custom now was a reminder of the total defeat of their chief deity before the Ark of God. The ark of the Lord was carried into the idol's temple. The idol fell in total subjugation. God proved to be the victor. And Dagon's humiliation is there. And, and, and even with that, though, it's not the only way the Lord is proved supreme in this section. 
things actually only get uh, more, uh, more potent. Because if you look then at verses 6 to 12, the ark of God is, is taken on what should have been a victory tour of the main cities of the Philistines. It should have been a victory tour, but instead what we find is that Ashdod and Gath and Ekron, they're not rejoicing to have the captured Israelite ark in their presence. Instead, they're being completely destroyed by the presence of the ark. And things really escalate even as we go. So if you look at verse 6 in Ashdod, the Lord terrifies the people and afflicts them with tumors there in verse 6. So in verses 7 and 8, um, the, the Ashdodonians, they, they call their leaders, they say, we've got to get the ark out of here. Uh, They have some sense of accurate theology in verse 8 where they say Israel's God's hand is strongly against us and against our God, Dagon. Isn't that ironic? Who still has their hands? Israel's God's hand, go through this passage, underlined every time you see, the hand of God was heavy. It's actually the hand of God was kavod, that same word that's translated uh, to represent Eli's heaviness when he falls and breaks his neck. It's the, same, it's the same Hebrew word that translates glory, the weighty reality of something. God's hand was kavod against them again and again and again. Whose hands are still working? <laughs> not, not, not Dagon. So verse 8, his hand is strongly against us. His hand's kavod against us. Uh, There's this glorious weight of God, in that sense, proving his power against us and against our God, Dagon. So they send the ark to another major Philistine city. They send it to Gath. And in verses 8 and 9, we read how in Gath, the text reads that the Lord literally caused a panic of death upon the people and afflicted them from youngest to oldest with tumors. So, So things are getting worse uh, for those who are, who are against the living God. And then uh, the, the Gathonians, what are we going to, that, that, would that work? The Gathonians, they get the ark out of their city and they send it to their friends over in Ekron. And when it gets to Ekron, it's not surprising that those folks are totally horrified. They say they've moved the ark of, of the God of Israel here to kill us. Thanks a lot, Gath. Verse 11, they say, get it out of here. The people of Ekron, they call the leaders again, and then they want it gone because the fear of death pervades the city. Because why? God's hand was oppressing them. God's hand was kavod upon them. It was gloriously weighty and proving His power upon them. And then by the end of, of, of the chapter, verse 12, while many people died, those who were left, how are they left? Are they left rejoicing in the power of Dagon, their victorious God? No, how are they left? At the end of verse 12, at the end of the chapter, they're left wailing. This outcry is going up to heaven. It's going up to heaven. It's actually a synonymous description with the, to the Egyptians after the final plague of death passes through before the Israelites are finally released. That outcry goes up to heaven. It doesn't mean that they're, that they're turning in faith to Yahweh. It just means that there's this pagan lament going on as they realize they're dying under the heavy hand of this living God. We're done. And that's the end of the chapter. We're dying here. That's the conclusion. So who's really winning? Let's bring the ark into Dagon's temple. This will be great. Let's get everyone up early and come and rejoice that our God is stronger than Israel's God. This will be amazing. The humiliation of Yahweh. We can dance and rejoice at that. Except that Yahweh is not defeated, but instead He proves Himself completely and victoriously superior and supreme. Dagon falls on his face, chopped in pieces. The people fall sick and dying and panicking. It may seem like the living God was defeated, but may that mistake never be made again. Yahweh can never lose. He is the defeater. He is the victor. Ultimately and always, the Lord and His way will always finally be the reality that stands. 
And this is a critical truth for us to remind ourselves in our current time, isn't it? How important is this? At the moment, like we said, at this time in history, the Dagon of our age is self and it's standing tall and proud. Right? My experience, my feelings, these are what rule the day. Humanity is at the center. There's no acknowledgement of transcendence. All will bow before what I, before what, what the cultural justification of we to say is right. This is what we're going to bow down to. God is done. He's gone. Forget Him. At best, He's over in the corner. But then we ask ourselves, how, how is that Dagon-style victory going? Is that Dagon of our current cultural moment really standing? Who, whose way is really being proved to be the way of victory in life even right now? Well, let's think about that question just from a few different angles here for a minute. Whose way of life and whose, who, who, whose, whose way is the way of life and who's finding themselves crying out in lament and sorrow? How about in the realm of sexuality and marriage? Let's talk about that for a minute. The climate, which says my feelings and my experience reign supreme, says that sexuality is a physical outlet I should be able to indulge in a way that brings pleasure whenever and however I like. Now let's ask the question, is that Dagon standing? No, it's not. It's not. The world is pretending like it's standing, but it's not standing. There's a piece published in The Atlantic back in September by a, uh, by a feminist author named Helen Lewis. And, uh, and she speaks about the fact that as a culture, we have enjoyed, and of course, there's a positive tone to that, we've enjoyed all the freedom we would like in the realm of sexuality since the sexual revolution has taken place. But then listen to the final comments of her essay. It, it ends with these words. This is, this is a secular feminist author from London. Writing for The Atlantic, she says this, final words of her article. Tomorrow, sex will not be good again. As long as some people have more money, options, and power than others do, as long as reproductive labor falls more heavily on one half of the population, as long as cruelty, shame, and guilt are part of the human experience, as long as other people remain mysterious to us, and as long as our own desires remain mysterious too, sex will not be good, not all the time. And she says, we will never simply want the things we should. Secular feminists. You hear what she's saying about the unfettered freedom sought in the sexual revolution. You hear what she's saying. She's saying Dagon's hands are, are, are cut off. Head's cut off. This is dying. We're not doing this right. The Lord's revealed purposes, however, for sex. They, they, have, not, they have not fallen. Dagon's fallen, but the Lord's revealed purposes for sex haven't fallen because at the same time we read uh, present research about how the most sexually satisfied segment of the American population is middle-aged evangelical married people. Dagon falls, the Lord stands. Or how about in the realm of, of just in marriage in general? Uh, in yesterday's Wall Street Journal, you might have seen this, there was, there was an article entitled, Too Risky to Wed in Your Twenties? Not if you avoid cohabitating first. Quite an article to be published in the Wall Street Journal. Too Risky to Wed in Your Twenties? Not if you avoid cohabitating first. And the article went on to talk about how the lowest divorce rates are among those who marry relatively young, actually, and don't live together beforehand. Whose, whose way is proving victorious in that? Is, is it the world's way that says live together and indulge those things before you've committed to one another as the Lord designed? No, it's, it's the Lord's design that's proving uh, to, be, to be victorious again. And we can just see this in so many ways. Even if we pan out socially, 
socially. Two more things to think about. Listen, listen to one writer's comment about what we've thought we could accomplish through sociological, maybe we could call them through sociological or political idols. He says this, the French Revolution raised its fist against God and produced not fraternity, but tyranny. 19th century German humanism did not produce a secular heaven, but the hell of Nazism. Atheistic communism did not produce a worker's paradise, but a slave's poorhouse. Likewise, secular humanistic postmodern America will not achieve its promised dreams of pleasure and prosperity, but only a legacy of societal ruin and lost opportunity. It's a heavy thing to say. But he's making the point. Societal and political idols have sought to suppress God. And what do we find? Well, there they all lie in the great graveyard of human hubris. And just to punctuate this, this this is something to think about as well. Think about our general posture as humanity toward nature and what what occurs in nature as of late. As as wonderful as all our advances are, thinking particularly of medicine, and and they are absolutely wonderful, we thank God for them, but we do tend to forget that we're actually not as in charge as we think we are. This week there was an article published about the fact that, that uh, with the presence of COVID-19, the world is likely sicker than it's been in 100 years. How's that for advancing? Right? Are we masters of nature? Masters of our health? Masters over death? We are not. Have we arrived at conquering disease and plagues and pandemics? Progress, sure. But here we all sit with our masks on this morning. We live in an age where we've become confused about our actual levels of power. We've been consumed by how well we think we're doing. Then maybe it's just because we can get blueberries in January if we want to. And we're not reminded of the, of the cycle of the seasons and that we're not as strong as we think we are. Uh, but these things come and we have to be reminded that we're just not winning. We're not winning. We're lost. We're in need of help that can only come from the outside. It's not a help that can be found inside of us. It's a help that must come from the outside. We ultimately need the God who crushes Dagon to be our rescue. Which ultimately is what this whole section points forward to. Because the God who endures humiliation, the God who actively was carried off into captivity for the sake of His people, the God who endures humiliation is the God who proves through that humiliation to be ultimately and totally supreme. This is how God works. Which, of course, is found at the cross in its most highest expression. There Jesus hung in apparent defeat and open shame at the cross. And as Jesus hung in apparent defeat and open shame, what did He cry out? He didn't cry out, woe is me, I lost. He cried out in the, in the midst of the horrific humiliation, He cried out, it is finished. He won. Through the shame, he proved victorious over sin, Satan, and death. In fact, Paul tells us Jesus put demonic powers to open shame by defeating them at the cross. The demons behind the Dagons are done. They've been defeated. Darkness doesn't win. Our sin doesn't win. Jesus wins. So so, so what what if the Lord appears defeated? What if he appears? What if we look around and he appears defeated? Well, Well, it might seem as though he's humiliated or relegated or ignored for a time. Not only is the word uh, full of proof as we search the scriptures, but the world is full of proof that his power exists right now and it is vibrant and it is victorious. And with that, 
the day will come when every knee will bow and every tongue confess his universal, sovereign, eternal, cosmic lordship. He wins. And he doesn't just win. Here's the amazing thing. But he calls those, even those who have been set against him as his enemies, he calls to them and says, come to me and find forgiveness. Come to me and find whole life. Come to me and find rest. Come to me and find relief from this miserable condition of lostness and death. He brings salvation. So we sing. What other glory consumes like fire? What other power can raise the dead? What other name remains undefeated? Only a holy God. Let's pray. So, Father, we ask that you would renew us in the glory of your power and greatness. Lord Jesus, we confess that you're King, Holy Spirit. We confess that you dwell among us. Gather us as a worshiping community, bowing the knee to the eternal King. And we pray, Father, that we would be renewed in this today, that we would be upheld and encouraged. See you as the transcendent one, uh, who you really are. And in that, uh, we would bring you the glory, the weighty worth, the worship that you deserve. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.